Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. Whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put, on, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. It's the word of the Lord. Thank you, Terry. Right, today we're talking fasting. I know we've been in this series on prayer, and so that may seem like a stretch for you. But in the Bible, prayer and fasting always go together. They're never separated from one another. Fasting is an opportunity for prayer and for a deeper kind of prayer. Uh, and we, we know that fasting and prayer go together, partly because of the text we just read, because it immediately follows the Lord's Prayer in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount saying, when you pray, pray like this. And then he goes on to talk about fasting here in chapter 6. And so he ties these two together as well. Now, you'll notice <clears throat> when Jesus speaks on fasting, he says, whenever you fast, when you fast, not if, not occasionally, not if you feel moved by it, but whenever you fast. You see, Jesus assumed that his followers would fast from food. Now, let me make that clear. The Bible knows nothing of fasting from anything other than food. Now, I know you may have heard from different preachers or teachers or whatever, you know, you can choose your fast. You can fast from social media. You can fast from technology. You can fast from this thing or that thing. You can fast from driving your car and just ride your bike for a while. Those are good things to do for discipline, but they're not fasts. Fasting is from food. The Bible doesn't know anything else. It recommends abstinence from certain things for us for a time. There are times in biblical history where the people have been told, you know what, you probably should lay that aside. The most famous example is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when Paul says, uh, don't withhold sex from your spouse unless you, it's for a time for prayer and fasting. Right? So there's times when we abstain from certain activities for a deeper spiritual purpose, but those aren't fasts. And so I want to make clear up front, when we're talking about fasting, we're talking about not eating food. That's what fasting is, biblically. And Jesus expected his followers to do it. He expected that we would fast regularly. Now, some of us get around that by saying, well, in the time and place Jesus lived, it was culturally appropriate and normative for people to fast. He, the Jewish people, the faithful ones, not everybody, okay? You got to remember, not everybody in, in Israel who was Jewish was like, 100% faithful to all of the commandments and everything that we have. In fact, it was probably the most religious who were. But the Pharisees fasted twice a week and recommended it to everybody in their care, recommended it to everybody who would gather in their second synagogues. You should fast two days a week, the Pharisees would say. That's what's customary. It's what's cultural. It's what's normal. And it's what God has called you to, the Pharisees would say. And Jesus says, when you fast... He's expecting his children to fast. And this didn't end after Jesus. The, the fasting, the practice of fasting, did not end in the Christian church after Jesus. We have this beautiful document from the early church called the Didache. 
The Didache is the first discipleship manual for the church. And here's what the Didache says about fasting in part 8. Let not your fasts be with the hypocrites, for they fast on Mondays and Thursdays. But do you fast on Wednesdays and Fridays? That's the earliest instruction about fasting in the Christian church. It was assumed that Christians would fast twice a week. Now, in this thing, now this, you got to understand what's going on here, right? They're trying to differentiate and distinguish themselves from the Jewish community. The early followers of Jesus were almost entirely Jewish. They started in the Jewish synagogues. And so what the authors of the Didache here are saying is to distinguish yourself from the, from the other Jewish people, to distinguish yourselves as followers of Jesus, as part of this new community, you should fast on different days. And then he'll go on to say in this same chapter about prayer, that you should be praying the Lord's Prayer three times a day. These things will distinguish you as followers of Jesus, and they are for your spiritual upkeep. They're for the sake of your soul. You should fast twice a week and pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. And that's the earliest discipleship manual of the church. And so for hundreds of years after Jesus, Christians continued to fast. In fact, for more than a thousand years. In fact, up until the Protestant Reformation. In fact, even after that, it's really our modern churches that have not emphasized fasting. The Catholic Church emphasizes fasting. The Eastern Orthodox Church emphasizes fasting. Lots of strains of Protestant churches emphasize fasting, but in our modern evangelical world, we just don't talk about it. We talk about it's this thing that's impractical and strange and people won't do it, and we find other ways to fast that aren't really fasting to make ourselves feel better like we're doing something. And one of the reasons that we haven't emphasized fasting is because it feels legalistic. It feels like one of those laws we're supposed to keep to keep ourselves in God's good graces. But just like the Sabbath was made for humanity and not humanity for the Sabbath, fasting was made for your soul, not your soul for fasting. And so I want to call us as a church to practice fasting. So this, this is not going to be a normal sermon from me. There's not going to be a ton of content, a ton of like teaching. It's much more practical today. And so we're going to ask the question now, why? Why fast? If I say fasting was made for your soul and not your soul for the fasting, it's not a law that you keep in order to keep yourself in good standing with God. It is a spiritual practice to deepen your relationship with God. And as is the case with many of our spiritual practices, something happens when we fast that we can't quantify. Something happens in the heavenly realms when we do things that we can't put our finger on, but God is at work. And in our fasting, God is at work in us and in our community. And so we're going to look at four reasons that the people of God have fasted throughout history, mainly throughout the biblical history, through the Bible. So first is for repentance. Biblically, people fasted for repentance. You can read about this in 1 Samuel 7, 6, in 1 Kings 21, 27 to 29, in Nehemiah 1, 4. You can read about it in Ezra. You can read about it in many, many places. I've just highlighted a few here. But throughout the history of the people of God, people have fasted for repentance. They've said, I am so deeply sorry. I am so deeply broken over, the case, sort of, over my sin 
that I want, to, I want to discipline myself. I want to go without food. In fact, in some places, it's not even that they make a conscious choice to go without food. You get the sense that their sorrow is so deep they can't even eat. It's, they're in mourning over their own sin. You see this with David after the situation with Bathsheba. When Bathsheba, he, gets, he rapes Bathsheba. Let's just call it what it is. David rapes Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. He's looking forward to the baby that's going to come. Only the baby dies in judgment. And we read that David's sorrow is so deep, he sits in sackcloth and ashes, which is what you do in your morning. He didn't eat. And it wasn't that he made a conscious decision to fast. It's that he was so brokenhearted and sorrowful, he couldn't even eat. So oftentimes in the biblical story, when people come to repentance, it's because they're so mournful and sorrowful over their loss and over their own actions that they can't even eat. And so they don't. They just sit in their mourning and they go without. They deprive themselves in their repentance. And this is, of course, linked to the second reason people fast, which is mourning. And there are times when people mourn, and it's not that they've done something sinful to cause the circumstances of their mourning. They're just in mourning. And so 1 Samuel 20, 34, 2 Samuel 1, 12, Ezekiel 24, 18, and lots of other examples throughout the scripture, where people are so brokenhearted over whatever has happened, over whatever situation, that they can't even eat. And so they don't. They choose not to. And so they sit and allow their mourning to wash over them. Man, we, we live in a world that does a really terrible job with mourning. In, in the evangelical world, especially, I'm going to single some people out here, but especially among white Christians, Right? There are some other ethnic groups that really culturally know how to mourn well. White folk, we ain't one of them. Right? We, just, we don't mourn well. Um, we have a 30-minute funeral and then a reception afterward, and that's kind of all that we're allowed. Um, we don't have like months of ritual and practices around our mourning that help us to facilitate it. We look at other cultures that, you know, you wear black for six months after the death of a spouse and you only eat certain things and you go to these rituals and we look at them and we think they're weird and they're just trapped in this place and we don't realize that those are, those are there to help facilitate the mourning. They're there to help people walk through. We're like, why aren't you smiling three weeks after the thing? Biblically, people knew how to mourn. This is a culture that is not devoid of mourning, that doesn't say, put a happy smile on things, just get back to life. You need to get back on that horse and keep going after a tragic incident. And so people would fast in their mourning. It was a way of facilitating their mourning. It was a way of physically involving themselves with their emotions and their souls. That's another thing we don't do very well. In a, world, in, a, in a church where we've lost some of the physicality of our practices, we don't kneel as much. We don't smell the incense. We don't taste of the bitter herbs. In a, in a culture where we haven't linked the body and the soul in the way that ancient peoples did, we lose something. When we don't express our emotions and our spirituality through our bodies, and fasting is a way to do that. It's a way of reflecting in my body what is happening in my soul and in my heart. And so we fast for mourning. We go without. And what begins as just a distaste for food because of my sorrow becomes a discipline to reflect in my body what's going on in my soul. So for mourning... Now, these next two you'll connect more with, I think. 
Um, communion with God in preparation for God's work. This is one of the primary reasons for fasting. In fact, the first example in the Bible that we see of fasting and then the first example of fasting in Jesus' life are for this purpose. Moses, the leader of God's people, is leading them out of Egypt and he goes up onto Mount Sinai. And up on Mount Sinai, Moses fasts for 40 days while he's in the presence of Yahweh. Now, we're also told that Moses didn't drink any water. Don't do that. Right? That's dumb. What's happening here with Moses on the mountain, I think, I could be wrong, but I think one of the reasons that in Exodus we're told that Moses goes up on this mountain and he fasts for 40 days without food or water is because he's in the full, undiluted presence of God, and that is his nourishment. That he doesn't need to eat because he's fully communed with God. And he's in the full presence of God up on Mount Sinai. And in his communion with God, he just doesn't need to eat. He's sustained by God's presence. We see this come up again in Jesus' fast in Matthew or in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, when we're told Jesus goes out to the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days. And then the devil comes to him when Jesus is really hungry, having not eaten for 40 days, having been in communion with God for 40 days. The devil comes to him and says, hey, why don't you make those stones into bread? Because I know you're really hungry. And Jesus says what? I don't live. I live by every word of God. I live by the word of God. The word of God is my sustenance. Just like Moses was sustained on Mount Sinai by the presence of God, Jesus is saying, my sustenance comes from the word of God. And so Jesus is fasting to commune with his father, to be rooted in his mission, and then to defeat the devil. That's why that episode happens right at the beginning of Matthew. It's so that when you're reading through it, you know Jesus has beaten the enemy before he ever started his ministry. Jesus has won the victory long before the cross. Jesus has defeated the powers of the world long before he's crucified by them. It's to let you know that everything that happens after this moment, Jesus is in charge. God is in control. Nothing will happen to Jesus that he does not intend because the enemy has no power over him. Born of Jesus, fasting in communion with the Father and confrontation with the enemy. And that's such a beautiful thing, man. It's fasting that gave him that strength. In his physical weakness, he had the spiritual power to stand up to the enemy and beat him. We see the same thing in Luke 2.37. In Luke 2.37, we read about this woman named Anna. You've probably not thought about Anna too much, but she's one of the coolest people in the Bible. She's a really old lady, like really old lady, um, in her 90s. She got married when she was very young, as a woman would do at the time, maybe 12, 13. She gets married. Her husband only lives eight years, and then he dies. She spends another 80 years as a widow in the temple praying and fasting. Seeking the coming king, looking for the Messiah to come, longing for God's restoration of his people. Anna is one of the coolest people in the Bible. This 90-some-odd-year-old woman who's just hanging out at the temple, praying and fasting and encouraging other people and looking for Jesus. And we're told that when Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, take him to the temple to dedicate him, 
Anna sees him and she prays over him. And she rejoices because she has finally seen what she's been looking for for 80 years. And she knew, she knew who he was because of that communion with God she had had for all those years. She knew the Lord. And she knew what to look for. And when Jesus came, she recognized him for who he was. We're going to read all through the Gospels how Jesus will come and no one knows who he is. No one recognizes who he is. How he'll talk and his words will divide people. And this woman, looking at an infant, knows God in heaven so well that she can say, that's my guy, that's the Messiah, that's my deliverer. All born of prayer and fasting. The spiritual discipline that she had engaged in for 80 years as a widow, has led her to this moment. It's so cool. Go read Luke 2. Luke 2 is amazing. And then the final reading, the final reason for fasting is for guidance from God. Guidance from God. In Judges 2, 2026, or 2020, yeah, 2026, we read um, about uh, Joshua. Anyway, no, not Joshua, it's Judges. Anyway, whatever. I can't remember this one because I read a lot of scripture this week, okay, and my mind's muddied, right? In Judges 20, 26, the leaders of the nation are calling for a fast to hear from God about how they should engage with an enemy. Uh, the same thing happens in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 3, where the people are engaged with an enemy and they need to know what to do. What tactics should we use? Should we go to war or not? And so they call for national fasting for guidance from God about what to do in this war. In Esther 4.16, before Esther is going to go before King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes, however you want to call him, before she's going to go before the king, she has her cousin Mordecai go out and talk to all of the Jewish people in the city of Susa and say, hey, would everybody fast for three days with me so that I'm prepared and so that I know what I'm doing is right? And so for three days, the Jews of Susa fast for Esther before she goes before the king. And then, I think most potently for us in our time and place, in Acts, no major decision is made without fasting. Read through the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 9, verse 9, in Acts 10, 30, Acts 13, 22, and 3, 14, 23. In all of these places, there are big decisions to be made, and you know what they do first? They fast. Especially in 13 and 14, where new leaders are being appointed for the church, they don't appoint a leader without fasting over the decision first. It's so important to the church that these people will not choose their leaders without fasting first. Seeking guidance from God and confirmation that their choice is right. And so we see through Scripture these four reasons for fasting. Repentance, mourning, Guidance from God and communion with God or preparation for the ministry that he's given. These are enough. But look, I've just put these into neat little categories. They're not really that neat. You can go read all the accounts of fasting through the Bible, and people fast for all kinds of reasons. These are just the major ones. The point is that biblically, for the people of God, fasting has always been a central practice. Always. And it's something that we've let go of. It's something we don't talk about. It's something that if we do talk about it, we talk about it as an impractical thing. 
or as something that maybe is a special calling for some people and not for others, as though prayer and Bible reading might be a special calling for some and not others. And that's just not the case. Christians are called to fast with some kind of regularity. Biblically, culturally, historically, it's all there. We are called to be a people who fast. And I think one of the reasons, I could be wrong about this, this is total speculation, but I think maybe one of the reasons we see failures in our leadership in the church so often is because we've not taken their selection as seriously as these early Christians did in Acts. Where they said, we're not going to call this person before we've prayed and fasted for a period of time over it. And we're going to get God's confirmation. They look good on paper. But until the Lord is confirmed through our prayer and fasting, we're not going to move forward. And we live in such a celebrity-driven, skill-driven time that it's easy to put people in places of authority and leadership just because they're gifted without stepping back and saying, you know what, maybe we need to pray and fast over this. Maybe we need to deprive ourselves for a minute and get God's guidance. Maybe we need to lay aside the distraction of food and preparation and planning and cooking and all that stuff so that we can just focus on what the Lord is saying to us right now. And maybe we would get confirmation and maybe we'd hear God saying, you know what, that's just not the right call right now. This is a practice that should be central to our faith. Not as a legalistic burden that we bear, but as nourishment for our souls. Let me get you guys. Fasting is hard. Fasting is not easy. I've fasted many times in my life, and then I became a diabetic person, and I always use that as an excuse to not fast. But in all of my life, and every time I've tried, it's not easy to do. And it's really easy to make into a law for ourselves. It's really easy to be like, okay, pastor, you said we should fast. I'm going to fast, and I'm going to be the best faster ever. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to kill it. And then you fail 12 hours in, or if you're me, three hours in. We have to remember that in all of the practices that God has given us to feed and nourish our soul, there is grace. If we ever let go of God's grace in our practices, we've made them into laws, and now we're working opposite of Jesus. Now we're doing the opposite thing that this practice is meant for. So on the one hand, as Christians, it's really hard for us, but we must live in this tension between the expectation that Jesus has given us and the grace when we fail. If we lean too hard toward the grace, we'll never try anything. Because we'll say, well, God's forgiven me. I'm good. I don't need to do anything more. And we end up in what's called antinomianism, which is, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. Nothing else really matters ever. Or on the other hand, making things a law that without these things, we're no longer faithful followers of Jesus. And that is legalism where we say, if you don't do this, 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 and this, then you're not really a follower of Jesus. You're not really headed for heaven anymore. As Christians, we live in the tension between those things. We say there are things that God has given us and expects from us. 
and yet I'm not going to do them perfectly. And when I fail, there's grace. And it's to understand that the practices that God has given us are given for our benefit and our good, not to be a burden. That doesn't make them easy. Sometimes we talk about things and we assume that if something isn't burdensome, it must be easy. And that is not true. I've been trying to learn guitar for two years. I have three chords and I cannot switch between them fluidly. And I'm still trying so hard. I love it. And it's fun and it's life-giving and I'm terrible at it. But it is not a burden. And ideally, that's how our spiritual practices should be. They're not easy. They require discipline. They require a heart connected to the Father, even as they help to facilitate our connection to God. They're not easy. Because we live in a world that tells us those things are weird and don't do things that are hard. Don't stretch yourself toward those things. If it's hard, it must be a burden. There's a big difference between a burden and being difficult. We do difficult things all the time because we have to, even when they're not a burden. And the spiritual practices that we're given, including fasting, were never meant to be burdens laid on our backs to drag us down. They were meant to be hard disciplines that God gave us to build us up toward him. And so that leads to the last thing. What's the heart of fasting? Why do we fast? How should we come to a fast? Well, I've already said, if we come legalistically, then that's no good. If we come with a heart longing for discipline before our God to grow in relationship with him, then that's the heart that we bring. And so when we come to fasting, we have to come with a heart longing to know God better and become more like Jesus. As Christians, that's our number one goal, to become more like Jesus in every way. And that's the point of our fasting. That's the purpose. Not to make it a law, not to be seen by others and praised. That's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 6 when he said, don't, don't make yourself all miserable. It's like a kid when they're sick trying to get out of school, Right? Your kid comes down, your kid comes out of their room with a little sniffle, it's not much, but they want to make it like, I'm, I'm dying, I have pneumonia, I'm like going to spread it. If I go to school, everybody else is going to die too. I can't go today. And, and then like, if you let them stay home 20 minutes later, they're bouncing off the walls. Right? That's sometimes in the past, that's how people have approached these spiritual disciplines. If you're in a community that values them and thinks that you're special and holy if you do these spiritual disciplines, then you want to make yourself look like you're doing them. And so Jesus is talking to these people and he's like, when you fast, don't be like that kid coming out with the sniffles. Like, don't, don't dramatize your fasting. No, like make it look like you're well fed. That's what it means to put oil on your head and be washed and clean. Make it look like you had a hearty breakfast this morning, even though you ain't ate a thing. That's the heart of fasting. To go to my Father and to become more like Jesus. And in Isaiah 58, I'm, I'm going to end with some practical tips on how to fast. But first, I want to go to Isaiah 58 because something really important happens in Isaiah 58. Listen to these verses, verses 3 to 10 of Isaiah 58. Why have we fasted, but you have not seen? These are the people calling out to God. Why have we fasted, but you have not seen? We've denied ourselves, but you haven't noticed. 
And here's God's response. Look, you do as you please on the day of your fast and oppress all your workers. You fast with contention and strife to strike viciously with your fist. You cannot fast as you do today, hoping to make your voice heard on high. Will the fast I choose be like this? A day for a person to deny himself, to bow his head like a reed and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Isn't this the fast I choose? To break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to tear off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him, and not to ignore your own flesh and blood? Then your light will appear like the dawn, and your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you, and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. At that time, when you call, the Lord will answer. When you cry out, he will say, here I am. If you get rid of the yoke among you, the finger pointing and malicious speaking, and if you offer yourself to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted one, then your light will shine in the darkness and your night will be like noonday. What God is saying here is that if your fast is not linked to a deep desire to seek God's kingdom, then it's just a performance and it's meaningless. If your fast is just a way for you to perform before God and to try and get in his good graces and not a way for you to become more like God, more like Jesus, to seek justice, to seek his kingdom, to seek his purposes in the world, then it's pointless. But if your fast is meant to draw you into relationship with your God and to make his purposes your purposes and to live as he has called you, to become more like Jesus, then your fast is in the right place. This is not a call against fasting. This is a call against fasting with the wrong heart for the wrong purpose. We fast to become like Jesus, to see his kingdom come in our lives and in our community. That's why we fast. And I'll tell you, folks, as long as fasting is about you and your purposes, you will fail and it will not b benefit you at all. But if your fasting is about becoming like Jesus and seeing his kingdom come, then it is of inestimable value. If your fast and your spiritual practices are about becoming like Jesus and seeing his kingdom come in the lives of everyone you meet, in the world in which you live, then your fasting is of eternal value. It has eternal consequences. And it is right and good. That is why we fast. And so, this afternoon... I'm not going to level this challenge to the general congregation right now. I'm going to let you sit with that teaching for a bit. But if you're coming this afternoon, no, I'm going to call everybody who's part of the Hillside team to fast with me once a week. And we'll talk about how we do that. We'll talk about practices of fasting, what will work for you. And we'll talk about precautions to take if you have a medical condition that makes it hard to fast or isn't good for you. I have diabetes. I'm at the top of the list of people who have to have help when we fast, right? So I understand that implicitly. 
And so we're going to talk about all of those things this afternoon as I lay out the challenge for us to fast once a week for the future of Hillside. But if you're here now, and you all are, thank you for staying and not walking out. For those of us who are here now, I want you to sit with this. And I want to, I want to challenge you to ask yourself, have I ever considered fasting before? And if I have, have I ever considered it as something special God calls some people to and not other people? And I challenge you to read the scripture, just look up evidence, just look up places of fasting. You can go to Bible Gateway and put in the word fast or fasting and see what verses come up. Read through the scripture. See how it's a practice of God's people. And then earnestly seek God. Not about whether you should fast, but about how you should fast. Seek the scripture, seek the Holy Spirit, go to your Father in heaven and ask, God, how would you have me fast? How would you have me fast for your kingdom? How would you have me fast to make to look more like Jesus? What kind of routine should I put into my life that includes fasting as a spiritual practice? So that's, that's the challenge today. That's the call. And above all, to remember that when you fail, as you inevitably will, God is there with gracious arms, ready to embrace you and walk this road with you and say, come on, child, let's try again. God, thank you. Thank you that you've given us practices for our souls. Thank you, God, that you created this world to support your people. You created this, this system, this faith that we buy into, that we call our own, that we give our allegiance to, in order to build up our soul, in order to make us more like Jesus, and in order to bring your kingdom on earth. And so, God, I pray that through this body, through our practices, through, through the ways that we seek your face and to become like Jesus, you would impact our community. We would see your kingdom come. Holy Spirit, let your fire fall. Let your, let your energy be known in this room. Let your discipline be felt. And let your love and your embrace be known in this community. Above all, God, I pray that we would seek your heart in all things and the leadership of our King Jesus through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.